Well, it's good to see folks here tonight out of the heat. As cool as it is in here, I don't know why you wouldn't want to be here tonight, huh? That's a great place to be. Um, we're studying the book of Revelation, and tonight we find ourselves still in chapter number two, and we're going to go to the second church of uh, the seven churches. We looked at the church uh, of Ephesus last week, and uh, tonight we'll go to the church of Pergamos. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's just a couple of verses. I'd like to read the verses, and then we'll uh, go back over them and cover them individually. Beginning in verse 8 in uh, Revelation 2, Verse 8, and unto the angel of the church of Samaria, excuse me, Smyrna, right, I got the wrong thing on my mind here. Uh, to the church of Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, uh, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that uh, ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall be not hurt by the second death. That's the first time the second death is mentioned in Scripture, and I think it's important that we uh, note that, and we'll have something more to say about that later. But we begin tonight by looking at this church, and we'll begin with the assembly itself, the assembly of Smyrna. Smyrna received its name from their principal commercial product, which was myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H, myrrh. Uh, it was a prosperous sea city. Uh, you know, Ephesus uh, had a seaport, but it was off the river, a channel up the river, for it laid three, four miles off the coast, the, the coast of the, uh, the, uh, the sea. And, uh, but now here... This city, Smyrna, is right on the coast, and it has a tremendous seaport uh, and does a great business. Uh, this city is second only to the city of Ephesus of the seven churches. This would be the number two and in uh, priority and in uh, uh, superiority. They, they actually contested with Ephesus uh, from time to time to try to gain the the, the number one position as being the seat of the Roman government. They were never successful, uh, but uh, they were a very prosperous city. This city, unlike Ephesus, is nothing more than an archaeological dig today. This city uh, has a city still today of about 50,000, probably more than that now, because these notes are getting old. Uh, but uh, uh, tens of thousands are in this city. If you're in the Air Force, uh, you've heard of this city. 
uh, you've heard of it as by the name of Izmir, Izmir, Turkey. Uh, there's an air base there. I know I was uh, one time uh, being considered to be stationed there, but I was not, and I thank the Lord for that. Uh, but uh, Smyrna uh, is a Greek word which means bitter. The word means bitter, Smyrna, and uh, the, the, the product of myrrh is actually a gum risen, and it's taken from a, a shrub, shrubby uh, tree and, and, and has a very bitter taste, a very bitter taste. Uh, by the way, it must be crushed before it brings out the strong taste and odor. And being crushed is just what this church was being done to uh, by the world uh, from the persecution. Uh, myrrh uh, was used uh, as uh, uh, many different ways. One way is it was an ingredient for making perfume. You ladies might like to know that. Uh, but it was a base for perfume makers. Uh, we read that in Psalms 45, verse 8. Uh, it was one of the ingredients of the holy anointing oils for the priest. We're told in Exodus uh, chapter 30, verse 23. And it's also a, a for the use of purification of women. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 12. Has many uses. Another, uh, mean, um, another use of this was for embalming. Uh, and you'll we read about that in John 19. We'll say a little bit more about that later in verse 39. And then lastly, it was uh, had a, a, a medical purpose. It uh, was somewhat of a pain uh, killer, uh, uh, helped in pain. And uh, we'll say something more about that a little later. Uh, most significant that our Lord spoke as he did uh, to this assembly at Smyrna, for this church was in the midst of a very bitter sorrow and suffering, a very hard time to live in this city. Uh, it uh, was crushed, you might say, under the heel of the Roman government, uh, which was trying to eliminate all of Christianity during this time. But it was also uh, it also suffered greatly from the Jewish people. There was a great Jewish population in this city, as there were in many commercial cities. This was a city known for the medical and scientific uh, researches and uh, a lot of brainy people, and of course a lot of Jewish people there. And the Jews, perhaps in some cases, were more of a persecutor than the Roman government with their uh, worship of the uh, Roman ruler. Uh, you had to worship them. In fact, uh, Polycarp, one of the uh, old uh, church fathers, as they're called church fathers, they're uh, uh, pastors of the churches, he pastored this church about 50 years after John and was put to death uh, because of his stand and for the fact that he would not worship the Roman ruler. Uh, they wanted him to be worshipped as a god. He refused and he was put to death, and he was a young man at 86 when they did that to him. Uh, uh, when the church was uh, planted here in Smyrna, uh, we do not know for sure. 
many believe that perhaps it was a product of the ministry of Paul. Uh, he was in this area as he was there at Ephesus in his, on his third missionary journey, and uh, he was very uh, successful in starting churches. And by the way, that's the, the way uh, uh, missions, uh, when I pastored, I had a, pol- a policy that missionaries that we supported, you can't support them all. Uh, there are so many of them. Uh, you'd like to, but you're just not physically able to support them all. So I used as a criteria as the ones that I would recommend the church to support was that they were to be church planners, uh, either here or overseas. Uh, I tell you that the, the church is what they, they need to plant. And uh, the, by planting a church, if the missionaries run off, the church is still there. And uh, there's a lot of reason for having it as a church, and then they can teach the people and, and, uh, and, and educate another generation uh, for, the, for the gospel. Um, but this church uh, in Smyrna uh, is, is the only place it's mentioned in Scripture is here. You'll, you'll not find it mentioned anywhere else. It's, it was a difficult place to maintain a Christian testimony because it was so uh, afflicted and persecuted uh, of all the churches. It was, uh, of all the seven churches, this church suffered more persecution uh, than any. Now think of the time period. If you have your little chart that I gave you, and I hope you'll use that because it, it, it'll be a little outline uh, as we go through this study. Uh, but you'll notice that this, this uh, church, John MacArthur calls this the persecuted church. I have that written above uh, the, the name Smyrna there. Uh, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares will help you to understand this church. And then, of course, we see that it be, uh, it's from the time of Nero until uh, 313 A.D., and uh, that was some of the most severe persecution that you could imagine. Uh, I don't go to Hollywood to learn what it was like, but Hollywood has certainly made a lot of money uh, producing films on the gladiators and uh, the Christians being thrown to the wild lions and things of that nature. Uh, some of them uh, uh, picture, though not very many, the streets being lined with Christians used as torches. Can you imagine living in an age when a Christian was used as a street line? That's the kind of persecution these people were under. And, and it wasn't just for a week or, or, or two. It was for about 250 years, 250-year period. Uh, it was the most afflicted and persecuted of all the churches. Uh, Smyrna sets forth the age of the church history when the church was persecuted beneath the iron hill of Rome uh, between about 160 or actually Nero's before that uh, until about 312 or so. Uh, the author now, let's, let's look at this. But that's the assembly. Now let's look at the author here in verse number 8. And unto the angel of the church of, in Smyrna write these things, now notice how he identifies himself, saith 
the first and the last, uh, which was dead and is alive. He reveals himself uh, in a very best way for, to, to be able to comfort uh, and, and to encourage this group of people. You say, well, why would he say it like this? Well, it, it, uh, which was dead, referring to his uh, death, his suffering on the cross, uh, is what that's referring to. And these people were suffering. And also uh, as is, and is alive, which speaking of the resurrection, uh, being alive, uh, they were living during this persecution. And they didn't have any choice uh, in the matter. It's just the time in which they were born. Uh, he was reminding them that Christ had passed through this suffering, uh, this terrible time of death, and had uh, triumphed, uh, triumphed over, over it. Uh, this per persecuted people needed to know that, uh, that uh, their, their blessed Lord and Savior uh, he triumphed over this. He suffered as they did. He died, and he was victor over the grave. Uh, and uh, I'd like for you to turn with me to Hebrews. Uh, let's look at a few scriptures here that shows us about this time a period. Of course, all the New Testament time is, is written in a time of a very severe persecution. But in, in the book of Hebrews... I had that marker in there because my fingers get thick sometimes, but it won't help me now. It's on the floor. Uh, Hebrews, uh, let's look at that, please. And I'm looking at chapter 2, if I can get there. Hebrews chapter 2. Now, follow as I read it, beginning in verse 14. For as much then as the children uh, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy, uh, uh, destroy, uh, excuse me, let me back up, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and, uh, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but took, he took on him the seed of Abraham. He came as a man. He came as a man. Uh, wherefore, in all things it behooved him uh, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, that means to come alongside or assist, or like he is this church here, them that are tempted. Uh, we have a Savior uh, that's, that uh, is our high priest, and, and he's just not a high priest that doesn't, it wasn't touched with our infirmities. He lived as we lived. He suffered as we suffered. He died a very torturous, suffering death on the cross for our sins, and he rose again. And uh, he's alive today, 
That, how does that comfort these people? These people were in terrible pain and suffering. The, you know, when you're going through hard times, sometimes you wonder, does anybody know? Does anyone care? Is there anybody even aware of what I'm going through? And well, Christ was aware. He knew these people. He knew their suffering. Uh, this persecuted people needed to know that their Savior uh, knew all about the pains that they were going through. Uh, another passage in Hebrews, uh, while we're here, uh, in chapter 4. Look over in chapter 4, and uh, I want you to begin uh, to follow as I begin reading here. Well, I'm in Revelation. i got to get back to Hebrews again. My hands um, shake a little bit in case you don't notice. It's not as I'm as nervous. I just take so much medication that that uh, it's just it's better to not take the medication. Okay, chapter 4, look at verse 14. Seeing then that we uh, have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold uh, fast our profession. Hold fast our profession. In other words, keep your testimony. Stay faithful. For, for it says in verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's the big difference. Well, we were tempted as he was tempted, but we fell many times. He never did. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Uh, this church needed uh, the Savior to identify himself here as he has. Uh, mirth, uh, mirth is associated with Christ, uh, you know, at his first coming. We know at his birth. You remember the wise men, it was a couple years later, really. But when the wise men visited, they brought gifts. Three in particular was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, the, the gold was representative of royalty, the frankincense of deity, and a myrrh of suffering humanity. Uh, so it was at his very birth that this myrrh is present. And uh, it means bitter, remember. Uh, uh, he, he, he was, um, it says here uh, that uh, in Mark 15, 23, that when he was on the cross, they offered to him a wine mingled with myrrh. Myrrh, again, was a form of medication. It was a kind of a pain. They offered it to him. He didn't receive it, but they offered it to him. And uh, there we see it in his life as well. Uh, but not only that, we see the mixture of mirth and alloys uh, being used by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea in preparation of his death. They asked for the uh, body, and we're granted the, the uh, privilege of taking the body of Christ to the tomb, and they took the uh, spices that were normally used uh, 
They didn't have enough faith. That's why they took those spices. Those spices were used to, I said it was kind of a perfume and it had a good odor about it and it was to try to quiet the stench of a, of a tomb. Uh, they did not do as the Egyptians and embalm and that, and the body began to decay. And you know what a, a decaying body. Uh, Ron is not here, but he used to be a policeman, and policemen are often exposed to dead bodies going into places uh, where people have called for well, welfare, uh, welfare checks and so forth. And uh, so they, they, they are aware of that smell, and military people uh, have been uh, close to death in bodies. And so they used this as a, uh, a thing to uh, ward off the stench. But uh, Christ's body didn't deteriorate. Uh, it was laid in that tomb, and when it was resurrected, I believe it was just as fresh as it was when they laid it down. And... Uh, uh, he saw no corruption. Uh, but they they had good thoughts, uh, and the Bible talks about them having this, uh, this ointment uh, of myrrh and alloys to anoint the body. And then uh, when Christ uh, comes again, uh, we find this over in Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6. And if you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, I'd encourage you to to make that a study. It's a great prophetic book, but uh, it's a miniature Bible. Uh, Isaiah is very unique in many ways. And if you read anything in Isaiah uh, chapter 39 and down, it's going to be about an Old Testament economy. And if you read about the forward part, 40 up to the end, 66, you'll find that it has to do uh, with the New Testament and here in Isaiah, uh, we're told that when, when he comes again, uh, he'll be presented once more with gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. No myrrh uh, will be given to him. Uh, Christ, you see, uh, will be the mighty sovereign when he comes back again. He'll not be as the suffering Savior as he was the first time. Uh, now we look at the affliction itself in verse 9. And in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 2, and I'm over to wrong chapter, here we go. Uh, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, uh, but, are, uh, uh, but are the synagogue of Satan. Uh, I said that there was a great Jewish population here. And it's somewhat mentioned here uh, that they, they had a lot of blasphemers, as, uh, people who were uh, slaying the testimony. I know thy works, tribulation, poverty, he says first, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Uh, we, you know, we find here, again, this church represents this time of great persecution. It was a period for some 250 years. The last persecutor was the persecutor Diocletian. 
uh, he was the most severe of all. His, thank God his, his rule was only about 10 years, and, uh, but the 10 years mentioned here, I'll say this well, before you jump ahead of me, uh, that's not the 10 years I'm going to refer to. Uh, but his, uh, his, his torturing of the Christians was the most severe of all these others. Uh, when, you say, when it says that ye shall have tribulation ten days, that's referring to the ten separate uh, attempts of the Roman government to wipe out Christianity. Uh, now, I say that not... Uh, to boast of any great knowledge of myself, that's what many, many Bible uh, teachers and students, scholars of the Word of God, uh, believe and teach. That this represents the ten separate uh, 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 attempts to, to do away with Christianity. Beginning with Nero. And Nero 54, of course, he's the one who was in uh, charge when they destroyed the temple, but He's also the one which you see in the movie, you know, they make that he, uh, <clears throat> and he did set Jerusalem on fire and then blamed it on the Christians. Uh, that's some of the slandering uh, that happened, uh, but uh, that's the kind of a person he was. And, and he outlawed Christianity, and that's really began the attempt of Rome to eliminate Christianity. Uh, from the from the world, uh, Dalmatian. The next one is 81 A.D. Uh, we're not going to cover all of them. I have them here. Uh, uh, John uh, was put on the Isle of Patmos by this gentleman, and again a persecutor of Christians. And as you go down the list, each and every one, down to the tenth, which is Diocletian, uh, in 284 A.D., uh, were uh, persecutors of the church. This church here represented that age. It, it, it was spoken about during this period of time. Now Christ continued by telling them that he was aware of their poverty. They had uh, suffered uh, the loss of all things. You know, we think of uh, their suffering the loss of things, but you can't imagine really what it would be like to have somebody turn you in for being a Christian in order to get your property. They would take your property. You couldn't own property. It was persecution of that nature that was going on. Uh, the loss of all things uh, that, they, uh, that they had was taken from them. Their possession, their social prestige, if they had any, and the possibility even of working to earn a living. You say, well, that, that's terrible. We have some of that here. I have a friend some 55 years or so ago went up to Salt Lake City and started a church. And uh, it was a mission church. So most of our fellow preachers, uh, we got like Paul, made tents. I painted houses. I don't know what he did. But you got... You you you, you uh, took the uh, took care of the needs of your family uh, by your own responsibility. Now you got some help from other churches, but uh, you you went there before you had any help. And he went there, and he needed a job, 
and they found out he was a Baptist preacher coming to town to start a church. And there's a couple of Mormons live in Salt Lake City. I don't know if you know that or not. And a lot of them have businesses, and they didn't want a Baptist preacher working for them, I guarantee you. So there's a little bit of that even in our day. But in this day, it was a much more severe situation than you could imagine here in our time. Uh, the, the, the suffering that they, that they suffered. Uh, the Bible states that um, they took uh, the, the early Christians, and this is out of Hebrews 10, uh, 35, took uh, joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring sacrifice, or, or substance, excuse me, substance. Uh, Christians, with the right attitude, they know uh, how to take material things. Um, I like the scripture in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21 where it uh, tells a Christian to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust thieves and they're not going to steal it. It's, it's a good investment. You see, the only thing you'll take to heaven is what you send ahead. Did you know that? I've never seen in all the years of pastoring and all the funerals I've done, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul trailer hooked on the back. Uh, they just don't take goods with them. person asked Howard, about Howard Hughes, was one of your citizens here in Vegas. Well, at the time, he was considered the most wealthy man in the world. He had millions and millions of dollars. I have no idea how much money he had. But one day... And what a tragic death if you ever studied his life. Without Christ, you have no hope. I don't care what you have. But he had all this money. And and in a garage one day, a guy was getting his car worked on, another guy was getting his car worked on, and they were talking about Howard Hughes and about all his money. And and they said, well, how much do you think he left? Well, how much do you think he left? And the mechanic rolled out of the car, underneath the car on what they call the creeper, you know, the thing they slide in and out on. They said, I know exactly how much he left. And they said, well, how much? He said, he left it all. That's, a, that's, a, that's what you're going to leave. You're going to leave it all. The only thing you're going to take to heaven is what you send ahead. A, a man's life uh, consists not in the abundance of things which he possesses. That's what Christ says in Luke 12. You remember this story perhaps uh, where, uh, where Christ uh, tells the story about the rich man that had so much that he, his barns couldn't hold it and he tore them down and built more and he still had, didn't have enough room and he was so concerned about keeping what he got. You know, it's like the old country boy says, he, he gets all he can and he cans all he gets. Uh, that's what that guy did. He, and, and Christ said, uh, what are you going to do? This night you're going to die. And I'm paraphrasing this. But he said, this night you're going to die. Then who's all these things going to belong to? They called him a fool. A man is a fool who lives for this world. These, these Christians here were poor. And Christ said they were rich. 
They were rich. They weren't poor. They were rich. And uh, uh, another scripture in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, I had part of it written down here. And when I wrote it down, as I often do, I wrote it down wrong. And so I, I wanted to get it right. So I'm going to read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you know it has to do with the... Uh, raising the, the offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And Paul was traveling about, and uh, he's, he's persuading these people to give. And in verse 9, it says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And that's where Christ King of kings and Lord of lords, he left heaven and came to earth. How did he come? He wasn't born in a palace. We know what it was. He was born in a barred stable out where they kept the animals. He said in his ministry that foxes have holes and the birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't have a great wealth when he was here. Jesus was buried, we know, in a borrowed tomb. Born in a barred grave, uh, a barred barn, and, and buried in a barred tomb. That's how he left this world. The poor saints of murder were comforted by his words, but thou art rich. She was rich despite her poverty. One of the many paradoxes in the Bible is this being rich but poor. Rich but poor. Paul expressed it this way, as having nothing and yet possessing all things in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. All the things that really count in eternity Money doesn't buy. Money doesn't buy. Peter demonstrated that with this riches in rags. You remember the time when he went to the temple and a lame man was at the gate begging and trying to get some alms from those, donations from those that came. And Peter looks to him and says, Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6. The things money cannot buy are the most precious things. This man needed really more than anything the ability to walk and, and be able to move about. The word rich I don't know if you knew it, but the word rich uh, uh, in the English, uh, we get the word plutocrat. You know, a plutocrat is somebody. But did you ever think of the fact that you are God's plutocrats? <laughs> you are God's wealthy. Now, you may not have any money here. You might uh, be 
as poor as anybody that you can think of, but a man's life may be uh, filled what with many good things in this world, but he can be still poor. Howard Hughes, I believe, was an example of that. He died a raving maniac, <laughs> taken care of by a bunch of Mormons. Who would want? Who would want to be taken care of by them? He talked about uh, a church, and I don't call it a church, really. They call themselves a church, but they're not a church. But to show you a, a rich church that's poor, you look at the Mormons. They say, rich? You better believe it. You ever watch uh, uh, 2020, or maybe it was... Um, one of the other ones like that, I saw it. I was, had it recorded, and I, I viewed it. And one of the articles was on the Catholic Church. The government was uh, sued them for millions of dollars. Uh, it seems like they have $100 billion in the banks. Banks all over. They own some of them. And... Uh, they're supposed to be getting this money to help people, but they find out that they they take money in, but they never send money out. That fund just keeps growing and growing. That's a rich church, but it's a poor church. Yes, sir. Sound Bank, yes. They, I'm sure they probably have some here in Vegas. <laughs> As your Germans did that, it got them in a lot of trouble, too. <laughs> Government likes people to write stuff down. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this, uh, in this country we live in today, in the times we live in today, uh, a, a wealthy church 
has a lot of respect from this world. And uh, they, they seem to uh, be really above reproach in so many areas. But that's not to, to be true in the, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, realm of Christianity. Uh, this church was poor. I mean, these people were tortured and terribly treated, worse than anybody of any of the other churches. And yet Christ made it a point to call them rich. The Lord recognized how they had suffered, not only in the material world, but blasphemy. This blasphemy comes from the word we use, slander. And of course, the devil, one of his names is slanderer. He is a slanderer. He is a forger of all the lies and the false uh, uh, teachings that these people suffered. One day, we get to chapter 12, we're going to see the devil not always going to have access to heaven as the accuser of the brethren. Because in chapter 12, we're going to find out that he's going to be cast out of heaven. But today, uh, the church of Smyrna is behind the green, uh, what we call the green-purple. That would be Mohammedism and, and, and the uh, religion uh, that tortures, tortures Christians today, even today. And behind the um, other curtains, the bamboo curtain in China, the purple curtain in Spain. You say, well, what's that? That's the Catholic Church. One of the great persecutors of Christianity throughout history has been Catholicism. You need to read about how many tens of thousands and thousands of people they have put to death. People don't know that the Catholic Church had the Bible in 1100 and some. I used to know the exact date. But they had the Bible listed on the list of forbidden books, books that you were not allowed to have. One of them was the Bible. Study about this, the uh, Spanish Inquisition, how people suffered there just because they wanted the Bible in their own name. We have the uh, humanist curtain in our society today. America is going to suffer a lot more in the future I doubt if we ever suffer like this church. But if you read 2 Timothy 3.12, you know in later times, things are not going to be too good. And we're living, I believe, in those later times. Now, we get to the appeal in verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great English Bible scholar, and uh, I've read quite a few of his stuff, not near all of his stuff, but as a good scholar, he, he says that the word faithful here is from the root word which we get the word convinced. Now think about that. When you place that word in this place, a faithful place convinced. You see, Christ was not telling these, these saints here to just keep a stiff upper lip or to keep your chin up, or do, do keep doing the best you can. 
What he told them was to depend on him. What he told them was to be convinced in him. He knew that uh, they would fail most assuredly if they tried to bear up on their own strength. And so were you. Many of you are going through hard times, physical times, financial times, domestic times. Difficulties, difficulties face you. You need to trust in the Lord. You need to have your confidence in him. He talks about the crown of life here. This is one of the five crowns, and I'm just quickly going to mention them for time's sake. You have the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 25. That's for the saved person. You have the soul winner's crown in Philippians 4, 1, and also in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. That, of course, is the soul winner's crown. Then you have the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. That's uh, those who love his appearing and live accordingly. Then you have the crown of glory at 1 Peter 5, 4. This is often called the pastor's crown. You read the context there. He's speaking to the elders and, and holding fast, steadfast to their calling. And then the crown of life mentioned here and also in James 1, 12. This is the crown of enduring temptation. This is, the, this is the church that certainly had that crown coming, enduring temptation. We live in a, a hard time. It's getting worse every day. I, I've seen changes in my lifetime and many of you the same that you never dreamt would have happened. But here it's upon us. And it's only going to get worse. We know that. But Christ said it was not going to get better. He said it was going to get worse and worse. And so it's just another proof of the times in which we live. 